Other than that, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, verse 14 through 16. And you may not know, uh, but today is Ascension Sunday, which essentially is about 40 days after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And so it's just been on my heart to just be more mindful about celebrating the Ascension. We'll see a little bit why today. Uh, And as we've been walking through 1 Timothy I just felt that uh, we were going to hopscotch over verse 16 and come back to it on Ascension Sunday. Uh, Just have it be a special message today as we celebrate not only the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, but the very important ascension of Jesus. So uh, why don't we stand together and I'll just read these uh, three verses We just submit our hearts to the word of God as we read it this morning. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So we just invite uh, the spirit of the living God to come and to guide us into all truth as we walk through these six beautiful truths of the Christian faith. Open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to believe, Lord. No amount of worldly persuasion can usher a man, a woman, or a child into your kingdom, Lord. We pray that just the word of God would dawn on these hearts, just illuminate them. They would be partakers of the Spirit and uh, those that um, just declare belief in uh, Jesus Christ, whom we preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, go ahead and be seated. Uh, Paul, you know, uh, writes to his son, Timothy, a number of commands, charges, urges, exhortations, uh, things to major in as a leader in a church. And uh, just kind of this little intermission in the middle just says, if I'm delayed and coming to you. Um, I'm writing you this letter for this purpose. So verse 15 really gives us a a key. Um, It's not the only key in the book, but whenever you see in a book the purpose of the writing of the letter, uh, that is a key. That's something that will help unlock the book to you and help you understand uh, how to interpret it, what the main point is uh, of what Paul was trying to get across. And so he wants Timothy to be able to go to Ephesus, to the house churches there, and be able to help them understand and know how people, men, women, leaders, ought to conduct themselves and behave within the house of God. And it goes on to say that the house of God is the church of the living God, 
It is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And, and so you have this, these beautiful phrases to describe a local church, uh, specifically uh, Ephesus and, of course, Prineville, uh, that it's the house of God. It is the church or the gathering of the people who've been born again, those that call the living God their God. These words pillar and ground or foundation or buttress are incredibly graphic architectural metaphors. Anyone who's done any amount of building and we live in a community where most of the men in our church and even women, they've, they've done a huge amount of foundation, concrete pouring, framing, uh, roofing, all those things. They get it, that the foundation is so important. As is the foundation, so is the rest of the building. And so this foundation, or I, I kind of like the, the new King James, or I think it's King James, this buttress is essential to the integrity of a building. The church essentially provides a solid bedrock for truth. It, it provides this to the world. And with the foundation come pillars standing upright on the foundation as columns, giving the building structure and beauty. Hassler once said the church has in varying degrees always been the custodian of spiritual truth and is always intended to be so. And so as the church of the living God, we've been entrusted with the word of God to communicate to the nations of this world who God is, you know, what his character is like, what he requires, how he's provided for his requirements towards us. And to be able to be the custodians of spiritual truth, even today, even in Prineville. I like what Alistair Begg said, as the pillar upholds the roof, so the foundation gives a base to the pillar. And the church is the recipient of the truth of the gospel. And the responsibility then of the church is to support and bolster and safeguard the truth by understanding it, by obeying, and by living it out. I really appreciated that this morning. Kind of one of my final things in my studying was just, it's the responsibility of the church to, to uh, support and bolster and safeguard the truth by understanding it. So that's one thing. We, we spend a lot of time in the word of God here at Calvary because we want to understand the truth. And we want to obey that truth. And we want to live out that truth. And by doing that, we are protecting that truth. We are supporting that truth. And so what is that truth? What's the big deal anyways? Well, look at verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And here is just kind of in a capsule-like form, this truth, this bedrock. 
And it is given to us by the Apostle Paul, who Ephesians says the apostles are that foundation. They helped give us the truth in written form and helped spread that truth across the early church. And we just carry on their legacy, though not to the same degree exactly. And the Apostle Paul would say it's without controversy what that truth is, what the mystery of godliness is. This means it's got to be agreed by us. It's agreed by common confession. Christians from the day of Jesus and the apostles, uh, all the way up through the early church, all the way up through Catholicism and then to the Protestant Reformation, uh, just Orthodox Christianity agrees by common confession that there is a great truth that has been revealed. It's a mystery that was concealed in the Old Testament and is revealed in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. It's a secret of our religion and of our piety. And he gets into what that is. It's common confession that's been revealed to us. And one way to get excited about this morning is that Paul calls it a mystery. I don't know how many of you like mystery novels and grew up reading The Boxcar Children and The Hardy Boys and, you know, is it, you know, uh, and now we've got just the Sherlock Holmes and the new Sherlock, just some great mysteries, right? And many people out there, man, they love going to the library and looking on the, on the card catalog and looking at the back of the book. And if there's a picture of a skull, I just remember as a kid learning about how to read in a library and find a book. There was a skull on the, the back of the book and it meant that's a mystery. And it's like, oh, get this and, and go like find out who killed who, you know, and uh, murder she wrote and all that, you know. And, um, and so many people love that. And so a great segue in conversation on airplanes and in the coffee shops and with the friends on car rides is do you like mysteries of course i, I like mysteries some of my favorites here and, and man what about you know paranormal activity uh, you know activity oh yeah this that you know what about angels Ooh, angels oh what about like life after the dead or people even like raising from the dead Ooh, chills oh man you know yeah let's talk about that and you go oh yeah i happen to have memorized first timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and i've got six awesome mysteries you know, the mystery of godliness to speak out to you uh, as the gospel here. And so this mystery of godliness. And, you know, every heathen religion has its mysteries, you know. And, in fact, those mysteries are very, they're just very difficult to even get into. They're revealed only to the initiated. Um, there's, there's, it's just known that as you find these things out, Man, they're lacking carbonation, you know, they're really dead in their um, power. And yet, even those who are critics of Christianity would say that our mysterious truths have some real robust truth to them. They are something that's worth hanging our hat on. It's been said that even those who do not believe the facts of our religion can hold no controversy with us about the unspeakable greatness of them. So all those other religions, they've got, and they, it's just kind of, it's just, it's kind of, really not much. But when we talk about our great truths of the Christian faith, and that's something to actually like, you know, if it's true, it's pretty awesome. These are some pretty awesome things. Um, and if anyone be, would be a reasonable inquirer 
about these truths, as many intelligent men have been and women, they will find that indeed, you know, there's no greater fact in history than the facts that undergird the faith of Christianity. Um, And so verse 16, these wonderful six truths of the mystery, they are introduced by a formula intended to say something bigger is coming up, something bigger is to follow. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's just known among the world that what we believe, it's awesome. It is so powerful. It is so amazing. It's so huge. It's so worth a conversation, even with someone who doesn't believe. Well, what is it? I mean, get to it already. All right, I'm going to get to it. Let's hold on a little bit. But this this verse, verse 16, uh, it's been known to be some sort of hymn or some sort of creed, some sort of statement of the faith. Before there were scriptures written out, the early church would have faithful sayings. Paul, Paul speaks them forth regularly in the epistles. Some sort of faithful saying or hymn or song. Um, much of the lyrical quality of this song is lost in the English translation. But in the original Greek, it's actually very beautiful and is called most impressive in its original language. It draws by common consent attention to what all Christians hold to and that there is no maneuver regarding the basic facts of the Christian faith. It doesn't take much to know what these things are. Just digging into the word, coming across these statements like this. And I remember one man speaking to me much when we were declaring our statement of faith as a church. I don't need you to tell me what the orthodox beliefs were of the Christian faith. I'm sorry, but you, you actually do. You know, it, Being a part of a church and being a part of underneath leadership who are part of this foundation, pillars, ground of the truth, we, we need to declare these statements of the faith because we cannot maneuver regarding these basic facts. Charles Spurgeon said, there's no room for indifference where the gospel is concerned. It is either the most astounding of imposters or the most amazing of revelations. No man can safely remain undecided about it. It is too weighty, too solemn to be scoffed at as a matter of no concern. Foes and friends all alike confess that the mystery of godliness is great. It's no rippling rill of dogma, but a broad ocean of thought. No molehill of discovery, but an alp of revelation. No single beam of light, but the sun shining in its strength. So these six things of the mystery of godliness consist of two sets each. Two sets each, beginning with the revelation of of Christ here, that God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. So to speak forth that this first truth, kind of in chronological order of the life of Jesus, is that God was manifest in the truth and uh, in the flesh. And as we get into these truths, it's important to note that all of the conduct of the church, which is the house of 
of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, all of the conduct, the way we behave is a direct outflow of the creed that we believe, okay? You throw out the creed, Ken Ham said it yesterday, he was teaching through 1 Timothy, and when he got here, he said, you throw out the creed and you throw out the conduct, okay? You don't believe these things, pretty soon your behavior is going to be imitating that of the pagan and the heathen, okay? We don't want to throw out the creed. We want to be undergirded by the creed. And so let's get into it. God was manifest in the flesh. It's a pretty crazy phrase, actually. Just step back a minute, turn on your, your intellectual button, you know, or whatever, and think about that. God showed up in the flesh. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty amazing. God appeared in the flesh. God made himself known in the flesh. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 in its opening statement says that God in various times, in various ways, in times past, spoke to the fathers by the prophets. And then the author of Hebrews says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, or literally in his son. Okay, so God used to reveal himself by the prophets, and in the last days, he just said, okay, here I am. Hear me. I'm going to show up. God was manifest in the flesh. It's one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he showed up in the flesh. And think of this. This is one thing that's so special about going to Israel is that you go to the place where Jesus walked. You know, like, like you know, you go to different places, different temples, you go into actual, like, basically sizes of this middle section here that was a synagogue. Jesus taught in that synagogue. So there's original stones that Jesus walked on right there, okay? And, and you just go, he was here. God was here. But even we in Prineville can walk outside and look at the sun and look at the moon and pick up some dirt and just say, God walked on this earth. God manifested himself and became a man. That's where we get the word manifest. No, it has nothing to do with it. But he did. He became a man and he dwelt among us experiencing everything, if not more, than we have experienced. And the scriptures testify of this. Without controversy, God was manifest in the flesh. And yet, among the cults, it is the controversy. This is the issue. That we would say separates us from other faiths, even those who would call themselves Christians. Who do they say Jesus is? Is he a created being? Is he an angel? Is he a reincarnated Michael the archangel who is on the same level of Lucifer? 
is he a mere man? And when the other faiths declare that Jesus is a created being, not the creator who is blessed forever, amen, the New Testament says, they have diverted from the Holy Scriptures and begun to follow another gospel, which is no gospel. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God showed up in the flesh. His name is Jesus. And yet, get ready to be throwing red flags up as you speak with those out in this world because they will say it is actually controversial. Jesus is not God. God did not nor could not show up in the flesh. They've not been reading their Bibles. So let's look at some of these scriptures. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. John, the apostle, made it the theme of his book to show that Jesus was indeed God. And he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We got something called, the, someone called the Word here, who was in the beginning, and was with God. Now, hold up. He also was God. Okay, so mystery, right? It's a mystery. Start putting the little puzzle pieces together. Okay. All things were made through him. So he was with God. He was God. He made all things. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Who is this word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, who made all things? Nothing was made that uh, wasn't made by him. Who is this? John 1.14, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who, who would have done? Who is this? Who did this? And John says, we beheld his glory. I'm an eyewitness. John's all about talking about he's an eyewitness. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten or sent out from the Father. There's a different person in the Trinity, in the Godhead, the Father. This one who was sent out is full of grace and truth. John would talk later in 1 John 1, 2 about how that life was manifested Life that was with the Father was manifested to us. In 1 John 3, 5, John says, You know that he was manifested to take away our sins. So great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And who does the New Testament say was manifest in the flesh? Jesus he was manifested to take away our sins. Now, while John's intent was to show that Jesus is God, Luke, who was a physician, wrote his gospel to show that the God, Jesus, was also very much human. And so as a physician, he writes his orderly account and he emphasizes the humanity of Jesus that he wasn't just kind of like a, some sort of a spirit cruising the earth. He was a man with a name, with 
parents who ate, who hurt, who had emotions, who bled, who uh, was beaten, who was bruised. Who, you know, that, a physician with authority spoke on Jesus's humanity. So God was manifested as a man in the flesh, as a human. And Jesus would be speaking in Luke's gospel in 2439 to doubting Thomas. And he says, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, quotes Psalm chapter 40, a prophecy of Jesus coming to the earth. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. So it's the son speaking to the father of the mission and the plan to go redeem humanity. And this whole sacrifice and offering system, people took it way out of whack and, and, the, bull, and the smoke of bulls and goats began to burn the eyes of God. And he said, this was all to point to this great plan. We're going to show them now what all the blood and the bulls and the goats and the sacrifice, it was all pointing to this rescue plan. So let's get it going. And so this body that's been prepared for the son um, was given to him. And he writes, this is like, it's been said, it's kind of like Jesus's last words before he like goes into the capsule and is shot down into um into the world and into the womb of, of Mary. You know, it's kind of like his last words. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. So no other men in the history of the world delighted to do the will of God 100%. And so someone else had to come and do it. So get in the capsule or whatever, you know, just you, you forgive me for a little bit of artistic um, Ness there, you know, gets in the capsule. I'm going down in this body to do your will on earth. So he goes. And so as Arkant Hughes says, then so to speak, he stood at the rim of the universe and dove headlong past a billion stars through the Milky Way and into the womb of the Virgin Mary, where he swam and grew until his birth that cold winter's night. You like a good mystery? Let's talk about that. A good mystery. Let's just talk about it. I always remember Jakin Neusner, who is the, uh, who, he's passed away, but he was the leading scholar in Judaism, widely regarded and respected, writing a book called The Incarnation of God, where Jakin Neusner says, the Old Testament does speak of God coming in flesh as a human being in human history. Now, he's not a believer in Jesus. He's not a Messianic Jew. He's an Orthodox Jew, but as a history uh, professor, I believe it was at the Hebrew University, widely regarded to be the, the most incredible Hebrew scholar. He says the Old Testament speaks of, at some point in human history, God coming in human flesh. And that is a stumbling block to the Jews. Um, and then he goes on to say, when he's asked about the implications of this, he admits this does crack the door for belief in Jesus as the one everybody was waiting for. And he also says that many rabbis agree that it did teach 
that God was coming in human history as a man. And now that's a stumbling block to people who lean on their own understanding and human reasoning rather than the word of God. That's a stumbling block. This, is, this doctrine is a stumbling block to many of the faiths around us in Prineville today. But great and without controversy is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Why does it even matter? What's the big deal? I mean, so what? You, I mean, I get it. It's hard to, to grasp like one God, one Godhead, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Just like, oh, it's just too much for me, too much for me. It doesn't matter. And so I just choose to believe that Jesus isn't God. He's just an angel, just a man, just a created being. You know, what's the big deal? Not really a big deal, right? Let's just chill out, coexist, put the sticker on the back of your car, and just, you know, jive with one another, you know? It matters because your sin cannot be atoned for but with blood spotless blood the same blood that you have a human's blood your sin is such an offense against the holy god that blood must wash it away without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin blood 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 got it it's offensive in this world but sitting there with my little kids this morning in the front row holding the cup thank you for your blood because my blood is not sinless it could not atone for my sin or your sin your your blood is not sinless it cannot atone and in the story of human history even the best man on his best day with the law of god and his rules put in front of his face do this do this do this do this do this don't mess up man like they blinked and they messed up all right sorry you cannot atone for your own sins and no man can enter in the one who said sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you've prepared for me it is written in the book the volume of the book i delight to do your will and i will go down there and i will live a sinless life among the people that i've created and i will die the death that they all deserve and my sinless spotless blood will atone for the sins of the world as romans chapter 8 verses 3 through 4 say for what the law and the rules could not do because it was weak in your flesh and mine god did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh it wasn't sinful flesh it was he was just like us though on account of sin he condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who now do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why does it matter and why do you go to the pavement with the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon and the Scientologist 
and the Muslim and the Buddhist and the Hindu and anybody else that exalts itself against the gospel of Jesus Christ because the sins of the world must be atoned for in righteousness. And it is the glorifying plan of God that he would do it through the death of his son. So you try to do it through any other way, which most often includes your own good works that you want to boast and brag about. You are standing before God boasting in your plan over his, and that dog won't hunt. Every mouth will be stopped and every man will be found to be a liar and you will be dismissed from the presence of a holy God. And because Jesus is the one who came in the flesh. He is worthy of worship as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is worthy of worship because he is God. And I don't know if you've read your Bibles lately, but no angel will be worshipped in the presence of a holy God. When any angel begins to have any sort of hint of worship around the throne of, you know, John's like, mm, you're a fancy angel. <laughs> Whoa, stand up, buddy. Don't worship me. Worship God. I remember my buddy Lucifer used to kind of want a little bit of praise, and it did not go so well for him. All right. Why does it matter? Two small reasons. The atonement and the glory of God. It matters. So read your Bible. Know this mystery. Understand it. Now obey it and live it and preach it. Because people are going to hell because they lean on their own understanding and what makes sense to them rather than what makes sense to the God of all creation. It's too late for that. Spurgeon said, the revealing of God and Jesus crucified will appear to be great to you if you have ever drank deep into its meaning. If standing at the foot of the cross, you've seen all your sins punished in the person of the incarnate God and have heard the voice which says, there is therefore now con no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot think lightly of this phrase, God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. And so we go from revelation to vindication. The Holy Spirit had an incredible work in the ministry of Jesus. The Father did, of course the Son did, <laughs> And the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit vindicates Jesus and shows him to be right and true. If there are any accusations against Jesus, the Holy Spirit's work shows that he's right and true. And you frankly owe him an apology. 